Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every week we find a new movie to sit down and talk about. And this month we're going through the illustrious films of John Carpenter. Which means we finally landed on the episode that Dean's been the excitest to record, I think ever since we decided to do the podcast. This is definitely a top, top five all time. So today we're going to be talking about... John Carpenter's 1982 cinematic masterpiece, The Thing. Remake of A Thing from Another World. It is quite possibly the greatest remake ever made. It is quite possibly the greatest horror film ever made. It is, in my opinion, John Carpenter's greatest film. And it yeah. just celebrated its 40th anniversary, correct? Yes, it did. This movie comes out in 1982. It releases a, the same year as E.T., Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Releases the same day as Blade Runner and the same week as Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior. Yeah, so this this came out in a stacked year. Yeah, and E.T. beat it. And Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, that is the sad truth of uh, the thing, is that, um, yeah, this movie came out and everyone fucking hated it. Yeah. Ev everyone hated it. Yeah, I, I know it's said that this is John Carpenter's favorite film that he's created. Yeah. And I know that he was super bummed out when it just kind of, you know, didn't hit the mark. But I mean, there is a huge cult following behind this film. Well, now, yeah, this is the this is the crazy thing because the movie comes out eighty two. I'll guess we'll get into like the context, like the release of it, because it comes out in nineteen eighty two, and the critics bomb it. It yeah. it is just a gore fest. It is tantamount to a geek show. It is the characters don't make sense. The characters are bad. It's it's a horrible film. All the critics say so. Mm -hmm. All the fans, like the audience, say, yeah, you're on the mark. There's no, the characters are lame. The story's dumb. The only good thing about this is the creature effects, which are just gross for the sake of being gross. Yeah. And it's weird because usually there's like, oh, the critics hate it, but the fans are a little bit more warm to mm -hmm. it. Or the fans hate it, but the critics love it. Yeah. This, everyone hated it. There was a legit article, I think, by the New Yorker in 1982-83 that said, Is John Carpenter's The Thing the most hated film ever made? Oh, wow. Oh, oh, it doesn't. It gets better. Because not only did um, Roger Ebert say, This movie, though the creature effects are kind of good, that's all it is. It's just an effects show. Other than that, pretty pretty garbage. The, ori the original director of the original, um, the thing from another world, he said, man, I really wish there were characters in this. I really wish that this was good. I completely disowned this and John Carpenter. Yeah, no, everyone hated it. It wasn't until I honestly, I want to say until like the early two thousands, maybe into the nineties where people reevaluated the thing and said it was good. Yeah, that's kind of a, a rocky start. A little bit, a little bit, especially considering that this is John Carpenter's, pretty much his his big studio debut. Yeah. Because this is done by Universal Studios. It was Universal's attempt to kind of take back the reins as being the horror movie studio of, of Hollywood. Because, you know, their pedigree, right? Oh, absolutely. Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula, Dracula. Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Bride of Frankenstein, so on. Yes. So, in 
though, the 80s, they said, we're going to come back. They had John Landis, who did American Wolf in London, yeah. I think the year before. They had John Carpenter, who was going to do the thing that was going to be their big summer blockbuster horror film. Mm. And they had um, David Cronenberg do Videodrome, and he was going to basically try and make Universal's attempt at like a horror movie that can win an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And that was going to come out like the year after. And it's weird because American Wolf in London does what it needs to do. It's a big crowd pleasing popcorn Amazing flick. movie. Super fun. We did it on the podcast. Yeah, it's we a did. super fun movie. Videodrome, maybe not as well received as they wanted, but it was a hit with the critics. It made a lot of buzz about Cronenberg being this auteur and the thing bombed horribly. This pretty much broke John Carpenter. Like after this, he does Christine just to, just for the money. Yeah. Like he's pretty open that Christine was his like bounce back to show that he could still make a profitable movie. And I love Christine. And Christine's actually a pretty good movie for a movie that John Carpenter says he phoned in the entire thing and just did it with no passion. It's a really solid flick. Didn't you? We were having a conversation recently in the car, and I think we were talking about Christine, and you had said that he hadn't watched it since he made it. And then you you were saying that in his commentary, he's like, oh, hey, this is actually a pretty good movie. Yeah, yeah. John Carpenter hadn't seen Christine since probably the movie premiered back in 84, 83. And when he watched it, he was going into it being like, I did this for the fucking money. I'm yeah. doing the commentary for the money. And he's watching, he's like, man, actually, this is a pretty good, good watch. Like, no, like, there's still tension going on. The camera's still working. Man, even when I phone it in, I can still put together a pretty decent flick. And that's the thing about Carpenter at this point in his career, because the thing is the height of his powers. Yeah. Like, that is this is him, master filmmaker, fully formed. If Escape from New York was the complete John Carpenter, this is John Carpenter un, unhinged. He's dropped the weights. Yeah. And it's fascinating, because this is him with creative control. This is him, total freedom. And tons of money. And tons of money, because Escape from New York was a $6 million budget, makes 25 at the box office. This is a $15 million budget, makes about six fifteen at the box office. Yeah. Which is really, really bad. Really bad. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy, because when you look at the production history of it, he, the Universal only gave him, like, I think it was like a hundred grand for the special effects of the movie, maybe two. And then he basically put his foot down and said, no one's going to come to your fucking monster movie for a hundred thousand dollar effects. I want 2.5 for my effects, which he fucking got. And then he got Rob Bottin in who made some of the greatest special effects in cinema history. I mean, wasn't he also like, 22 yeah he was yeah he was 22 he was i think the protege of rick baker yeah who did um american wolf in london i'm pretty sure he also did star wars and like robot robotine was his protege he goes over to him when he's like 18 i think he like graduates high school and says i want to be in the movie making business and goes up to his door and says hey can i help you and he's like, sure. And he sleeps in like his shed as he learns his craft. Mm-hmm. And this is him fully like giving full reins, real budget, real money to show what he can do with almost nothing. And it's insane because every shot is like a different practical effect. 
It is, and it's disgusting. Okay, I need to ask you this, because you haven't seen the movie in like 10 years, and the only thing you remembered from it was it was gross. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think after watching it, I had like compiled all the, the gross effects and gross scenes together. So I remember it being a lot gorier than it was. So I was kind of surprised watching it last night. And I'm like, oh, hey, the gore is really kind of spaced out throughout the movie. There's three or four big gore scenes in the movie. Yeah, so I was just kind of surprised, but still gross. Just, you know, the things that they come up with. and I mean, Exactly. And it's the perfect way to describe this alien creature is a thing. Because you can't really put your finger on it because it's just... Something weird and gross every time you see it. I And that's the thing. When I was watching the movie, all the practical effects of the monsters look both, like, totally organic and completely alien. Like, it looks like something that should be able to, like, move and breathe and function. Yeah. But it's nothing that I could ever say could could be a real thing. And it's fascinating how well it is. And it... I think it goes to the fact that they're just covered in slime because it's just that I think that's what makes it really gross and makes things look so soft and malleable. Yeah, it's just ugh. <laughs> the, the movie made your skin crawl a little bit. I had to look away, especially the dog scene. I was like, I can't. I just can't. Oh, but that's like that's one of the best parts of the movie. Mm. And that is that is Carpenter, master filmmaker. Yeah. And him paired with um Dean Cundy, who's returning from uh, Escape from New York and Halloween. And I believe he still uses Dean Cundy all the way up until, uh, I want to say he still does They Live with Dean Cundy. Or I think he does at least Starman with Dean Cundy. Because after that, Dean Cundy goes on to do like Back to the Future, uh, Jurassic Park, Jack and Jill, which is weird. You're always throwing Jack and Jill in there. It's fascinating that Dean Cundy, who you could argue is like top five cinematographers of of like at least the last 40 years because he does Halloween, he does The Thing, he does all three Back to the Futures, he does Jurassic Park. He basically, they find out, oh, if you want to do a special effects driven film, you get Dean Cundy. He did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, for Another God's great sakes. film. A masterful film. Yeah. And then he does Gar- the Garfield movie, and then he does Jack and Jill. And it's like, what? What happened, man? Did Spielberg stop returning your calls? What happened? He was just doing it for the money. Just just for the money. Yeah, just for the money. Uh, but he sold out, man. I don't think he sold out, but it's just, hey, it's an easy payday. Let's let's do it. But leading into this thing about, you know, Dean the thing. Cund- the thing. The thing about the thing. You know, Dean Cundy, he's, you know, doing Jack and Jill or whatever. He did it for, like, the money. Yeah. But something else is, did you know the original director they wanted for the thing was Toby Hooper? Really? Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, the the guy that, you know, we watched, like, the four films in his uh, landmark franchise, like, last month. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, and it's really crazy because The Thing is not a John Carpenter brain, like, project, right? Yeah. This isn't a passion project. He loves the original, like, because mm-hmm. he loves Howard Hawks and... Howard Hawks kind of ghost directed the original thing from another world and he pays homage to it in Halloween, mm-hmm. but he never, John Carpenter never really wants to do it. He wants to do El Diablo, which is his um, Western film he wanted to do forever with Elvis and John Wayne. But by 1982, that is well yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. 
and he thinks he's about to get El Diablo made. And Toby Hooper signs on to do the thing remake, and he puts in what is described by Universal Execs as the worst script ever written. It was going to be a slapstick comedy that would be involving an alien invasion that would turn into some sort of carrot monster and would not shapeshift. And it would... It's some weird slapsticky black comedy. And, like, every producer... I've never seen the script, but everyone who's ever read it describes it as the worst thing they've ever read. And he was completely serious. Huh. I mean, I love carrots. I wouldn't want to see them, you know... Be monsters. Be monsters, shed in a bad light. I'm also thinking, would that have been worse than Texas Chainsaw 4? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, Texas Chainsaw 2, because he directed 2. I know, but I mean, if we're talking about the franchise... Is is for the worst Texas Chainsaw film ever made. It's pretty bad. I mean, I know people got a lot of hate for the remakes, but the remakes are competent. Like, they're structured films. Yeah. They might be boring or bland, but they're they're movies. Next Generation is an abomination. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, just Leatherface, that was a boring movie. Yeah, like, Leatherface was just boring. It wasn't bad. It was just lackluster had no zest yeah it was it was just super generic and then you know next generation was just kind of like what the fuck so i don't know yeah that, that sounds pretty bad i've seen remakes of the thing uh there's like a current one maybe like the past five years has come out oh no it's it's but, actually from 2012 2013 well it's um it's the one with mary elizabeth winstead and it's like a prequel to john carpenter's the thing takes place on the Swedish base? Maybe. Uh, no, I, I know that's the one. That's maybe. the only remake they made of the thing. But yeah, it's like, I liked that one. So, you know, there are competent remakes that can be made. But I'm like, that? No, that would never have worked. Oh, God. I mean, no. if this one bombed at the time, I mean, this one just would have imploded, died, and... It would have been one of the biggest box office failures, yes, right? Yes, of all time. And... That and that's and that's the thing. Leading into this, I wanted to be very clear that John Carpenter, he doesn't have a real big hand in getting this really developed mm-hmm. until he signed on. Because the person who writes this script is Bill Lancaster. He's the son of Burt Lancaster. Yeah. His previous films he has written in his illustrious career is Bad News Bears. Okay. And Bad News Bears go to Japan. And those, and the thing, and that is all three of his films he's ever written. Wow. Yes. So really hits it out of the park on the on the thing here. Yeah. So he ha- he comes in, he does the script, John Carpenter reads it, and he's sold on the um the testing scene. Where, you know, McCready's there with the blood sample mm-hmm. test and it's the hot wire. He reads that scene and he says, Oh, that's the movie. I can I can make this. This is the perfect take. He gets on to do this. And for the first time in Carpenter's career, he has the money to actually allocate work to everyone else. He doesn't have to be the guy who does the score, who -hmm. does all the pre-production, who has to source costumes from his actors. He doesn't have to basically do the entire crew's job on his back. He gets Ennio Morricone to do the score. You're you're one of your personal heroes. Ennio Morricone is quite literally one of the greatest composers to have ever lived. 
And his music that wasn't used in this score was used in The Hateful Eight, right? Yes. And fun fun fact, Ennio Morricone's score for The Thing gets nominated for a Razzie. Mm-hmm. And Ennio Morricone's score for Hateful Eight gets nominated for a fucking Oscar. Yeah. I feel people at the time just didn't just didn't get it. But we'll get to that in a minute. Didn't get it. Didn't want to give it a chance. Which is weird. Yeah. I'm granted this comes out the same time as like ET and everybody's in the mood for kind of more heartwarming, more family-friendly alien kind well, of vibe. Well, yeah, because prior to this we have Alien and it's just, you know, And we, Alien comes out in 79. 79. Yeah. So we've had, you know, nothing really but scary destructive aliens and then we get you know the family friendly alien that's not here to hurt anybody just you know just hits you in the feels and the other thing is i feel like we by 82 we hit the changing times right Mm -hmm. where because in the 80s that's amblin that's you know spielberg's run of just changing the movie landscape big family friendly big crowd pleasers i mean the two most high the two highest grossing films of this year are E.T. and Tootsie. Yeah. Big, broad comedies. You can take your kids to them. You can have a fun time. Yeah, I feel the 80s, the movies were more on the comedic side. I mean, we have, you know... Big, bombastic action films, good horror films, good slashers, but those are relegated to the genre, like, runoff, right? Yeah, you know, we're getting the uh, John Hughes 80s movies. We're getting, you know, the teen movies, so it's kind of... The Chris Columbus, the Home Alones, the... all. All those. Yeah, so it's really a mixed bag of movies, so I kind of feel like it was just, uh, I'm kind of tired of seeing the gore, and I want to, you know, go to the theater and laugh and have a good time. Yeah, like, I feel like The Thing is a holdover from, like, that 70s kind of, like, more bleak, more Mm -hmm. downer kind of filmmaking that bled over into the 80s. Yeah. And that's probably why it didn't do so well. And... It really sucks because John Carpenter, this is his chance to be the auteur, full control, with the money to back it. This is the first, probably the only time in his career where he has both the money, the skill, and the... The team. And the team to get it done. Because, like, again, this is an all-star crew right here. He has Kurt Russell at the helm. He already worked with him with Escape from New York. Kurt Russell is his guy. Kurt Russell will show up, do the work, and do anything asked of him. Was Big Trouble before or after this? Big Trouble's after this. Big Trouble's uh, probably three or four years after this. Okay. And that's that's the thing, because he does Big Trouble. I think Big Trouble's in like 86, 87 after this. And that's the bookends of, you know, the run, right, for mm-hmm. Kurt Russell. And this is a really different Kurt Russell performance. Oh, yeah. Because in Escape from New York, he's like, kind of a sarcastic parody and in big trouble he is an over-the-top goofball Mm -hmm. and in this he's like like a traumatized like real you know dude he's depressed he's depressed he's an alcoholic he has this whole backstory that carpenter has never like never even thought of putting in the movie because he's like i don't want to put whole backstories in here people know who you are you're fucking mccready that's who you are and i was just like well who is he like what you didn't you didn't get it you know he's 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 depressed and drunk i got that um that that was one of my gripes about the movie is that 
you know, I know you had said the critics had said it too about the characters. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think we needed a little bit more backstory. The only character where I really feel like we know them is, uh, what was his name? The guy with the dogs. Oh, Clark? Clark. It's like, I, you know, okay, he loves these dogs. He, he's, yeah, when... He um, is a dog person. So I was like, okay. When Benny's get when Benning gets shot, he goes and comforts the dog and not his friend who's been shot in the leg. Exactly. So I was just like, okay, I got that. He's an animal lover. Cool. But the rest of them, it's like, I really don't have a feel of you as like, you know, a whole individual. Really? Yeah, because I mean, we don't really get to know them. You know, it starts off with the dog being chased by the helicopter Mm-hmm. And then, you know... It's Which just, is a great opening, right? Gets you right into the action. Gets you into the action, and I'm just like, leave the dog alone, and the, the helicopter blows up, and I was like, thank you, Karma, thank you. <laughs> and then then later on in the movie, you find out, it's like, God, why didn't they get the dog? They were so close. I know. It's just like, it makes total sense now, but not the dog. <laughs> That's why the movie bombed. It was people, people didn't want them to kill the dog. Hey, anytime you hurt an animal in a movie, it's going to be problematic. The dog was an alien. But, I know. Um, I'm surprised. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> Whatever. I'm, but I'm surprised, like, the you think the characters just were just kind of blanks? I thought every character had maybe not like a full, you know, three-dimensional backstory because if each one had this be a three-hour movie. It but would, but I we I feel just... each one had its own, you know... I could describe each one of these guys in one or two sentences. I don't feel like I can. I feel like we just kind of drop in on them, you know, just like this, you know, helicopter does. And then we run from there. So we don't really get too much backstory. We don't get too much interaction. It's just a bunch of guys just sitting in this facility, basically waiting for springtime. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. Let, let me let me line it let me throw it out to you okay. all right because i can hit at least a few of them right now because clark yeah you said he he was the most he was the one you felt you knew the most about kind of a loner loves animals kind of keeps to himself but like childs he's kind of a no-nonsense you know kind of an asshole pissed you know, off pissed off he's like Everything's like, just don't talk to me about this voodoo mumbo jumbo. I want the truth. There ain't no such thing as aliens. He's totally against this whole voodoo bullshit. He's he's kind of an asshole. You have Nalls, who's the cook. He likes listening to Stevie Wonder, rolls around in his skates. He's the most young and kind of like he's using this as like a vacation. He's he feels a lot um a lot more like new to this than anybody else. Where you on the other side of that you have Palmer, who's this stoner burnout. He's yeah. still wearing his Hell's Angels biker gear. He's down here because he's like, I get to smoke all the weed I want and just zone out for six months. Like, I feel a lot of these characters have at least character moments that gives you something about them. Even um, Windows, who, you know, we don't even know his real name, but we know enough about him that... Okay, he's scared, he's paranoid, he works the communications things where he's just listening to the radio all day, yeah. and when he's alone, he's just listening to music. He's kind of this person who just wants to be out of here, but he's here and he's afraid of everybody around him. He's the one who goes fully into paranoia first and freezes up like everyone else. Yeah, I, I feel everyone in the movie has moments that gives you a lot of character behind them. Is, is this something where I'm reading into it because I've seen the movie like 12 times? Yeah, maybe. I mean, 
this is my second time seeing it, so it was just still very on the fresh side. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I, I could see that. You know, I remember Nulls, you know, being pissed off that someone, you know, threw away underwear in his kitchen. And it's like, you know, like, that's unsanitary. And I'm like, I'm right there with you. You know, I would not want to see that in my kitchen. But it's just like, you get these tiny moments and it's like, okay, I could see a little bit of your character. But I think because it's so fast paced, mm. you know, we're basically in the span of a day or 24 hours, maybe. Uh, I think somebody's done the math and I think the whole movie's over the course of like a week. It's one of those things where somebody, I mean, the internet sleuths who are probably like, it takes place over the course of a week. It's in Carpenter's mind. It's probably like two or three days, like at max. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I sat there and I'm like, this feels like it's just, you know, because the sun's out when the dog is being chased. It's later that night where the dog, you know, transforms. So mm-hmm. it's like, I have a feeling it's probably a single day or possibly two days Mm. so it's very fast paced so you don't really get you know to kind of see okay so this is what they live like on a daily basis it's just okay we're seeing a glimpse of what their monotonous days are you know on this base and then all hell breaks loose yeah i can i can see where you're coming from because the movie does just it just goes into it like there's it doesn't stop yeah it's it's an hour 49 minutes it's super like fast paced and the building tension and dread and stuff really starts early. Yeah. It's one of those things where I feel you still get a lot of good character stuff going on. Uh, granted, it's a lot of little moments. You know, Palmer puts in the VHS of an old game show he's seen a million mm-hmm. times to for entertainment. And him and Childs are passing a joint around because they're just killing time. Yeah. And then you even have somebody like Fuchs, who's, you know, the brain, who's like the egghead who just sits in the lab all day pouring over notes. Just, Mm -hmm. he's like, well, this is my job. I'm a researcher. And this also gives me something to do other than stare at the wall all day. It's, it's a movie about guys going stir crazy more than anything. Yeah. And I mean, that makes total sense. You're out in the middle of nowhere. It's freezing. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know... (laughs) There's no women around. Women are smart enough not to go to Ant-fucking-Arctica for work. For six months at a time, yeah. You know. And then just, you know, the sheer horror of, are we going to survive the six months? You know, not because of an alien, but just because... You can get snowed out. Get snowed out. They talk all the time about there's a storm coming. It's so cold. Also, when they do the shot, when the dog's running in of that giant tundra, Mm -hmm. where there's nothing but snow for miles in its real location. Yeah. That it gives such a tone and such a mood to the opening of the film that pours through the whole thing. Well, yeah, but I mean... They're alone. They're isolated. But that plays into kind of, you know, just being a human being and seeing that and feeling like, wow, if I were in, you know, their place, I would be terrified just being completely in the middle of nowhere. You know something I just realized? Hmm. We should probably tell people what the movie's about, seeing as we're like a half hour in. Oh, you know, we, just, we, we kind of, you know, skirted around it, but yeah, yeah. But go ahead, tell everybody what the movie's about. All right, this is the back-of-the-box synopsis. So, in the winter of 1982, a 12-man research team at a remote Antarctic research station discover an alien buried in the snow for over 100,000 years. And soon, unfrozen, and the form-changing alien wreaks havoc, creating terror, and becoming one of them. And throughout the movie, we have the 12-man crew growing paranoia and fear, which one of them is the thing. 
we as the audience don't know the same as the characters and it unfolds in this massive climax that is awesome because they just blow everything up it's great but yeah i i think the movie as a whole is just such a well thought thought out horror film and a horror experience because none of the characters do anything dumb is does any character make a dumb illogical decision signing up to go away for six months okay okay stop stop that right there but we we need men on the wall damn it you need men like me on that wall you can't handle the truth that they're they're down there because you can't handle the truth of the aliens on the antarctic circle i mean i don't want to be around you know the aliens that are just you know waiting to to feed and build their ship to fly away okay okay D- leaving away the fact that they were dumb enough to sign up for a six months uh excursion to antarctica in the terms of the movie Within the hour 49, does anyone do anything dumb? I feel like someone has to do something dumb and I just can't think of it. No, it's because no one does anything dumb. That's why I love this movie so much. It is a horror film where no one is is irrational. No one does anything stupid. No one does anything that you, under the same circumstances, wouldn't logically come to that same conclusion. You know, um... When Blair, Wilford Brimley's character, Wilford Brimley's character, see, I can do English, when he finds out this thing can could infect the entire world in less than, like, uh, uh, six months. Yeah. It could infect the entire world, completely take over, and it'd be unstoppable. First thing he does is a very logical decision. I have to not let this thing get off the base. I'm going to cut off the communications. I'm going to blow up the the or i'm gonna disable the helicopters the tractors to make sure whatever that thing is is here it can't escape it can't get out and we're just gonna take care of it here and yeah he goes crazy blast blasting everything blowing everything up but it's a completely rational thing when he understands the reality of it yeah because it will spread if it could spread amongst 12 men guarantee it could spread you know Across the globe? Yeah, with how little it needs to spread. It, it Completely logical decision. And then you have um, McCready, who is like, okay, this thing, if it wants to, it'll just run out into the into the snow and get frozen. And it'll wait. And it'll just wait. It did it before. Did mm-hmm. it for 100,000 years. We can't let it do that. We have to blow it up. We have to kill it. We, we're going to die doing it, mm-hmm. but we have to to save the world. And that's, that's the thing. All the little decisions throughout the movie, no one does anything dumb. Even Fugues, who, you know, is the brainhead, he makes a completely logical statement of, hey, this thing, I don't know how much it needs to infect you, but it's probably not a lot. Everyone needs to prepare their own meals, only eat out of cans. Yeah. Only things that are sealed. And it's like, that's a completely logical conclusion to what's going on. That's 100% logical. And even when Blair, he kills the dogs because they were infected. Yeah. And I know we don't, the dogs, why you kill the dogs? But obviously he had to because they were infected. And all these little decisions, all these little things work out to make a completely intelligently written, smart, well-acted masterpiece. Because the tension and the paranoia is palatable through every scene. Am I reading too much into it? So your original question was, does anyone do anything stupid? Yes, does anyone do anything stupid? Well, 
Okay. I was about I, like I, 10 minutes ago, I, but did I, anyone do anything I, stupid? I have one. I have one. Okay. McCready's choice in hat. You, no. That sombrero is masterful. That's not a sombrero. What is it? Whatever it, it is, it's, like, it's ballin'. It's like a cowboy hat that he, you know, he kind of looks like Yosemite Sam in that hat. And that's a bad thing? Eh. Oh, come on. I mean, I like his outfit. I love, you know, the jacket, the pants, the boots, the fact The that... hair... The fact that um, Kurt Russell looks more attractive, the more unkempt he, he looks. Yeah, there's just some guys where that's, you know, their style, and it works. The long hair and the big bushy beard. Yeah, and the leather jacket. Uh, the whole thing, but yeah, I, I'm not too big on the hat. I, Again, I don't think that's a bad decision. Might, might be a bad choice, but not a bad decision. Also, I was waiting for, you know, we have the iconic poster of the thing. Oh, which, yeah. Which I love, you know, because that's a cool poster. I don't know who did the artwork for that. But, uh, yeah, I was waiting for the person, you know, with the coat and the light coming out of their face. I was like, okay, it's going to be one of these guys, you know, when they go out in the snow. And I was like, it never happens. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the poster, somebody gave the poster artist i think just a brief synopsis of the movie mm -hmm. i don't even think they saw the movie they just came up with a poster which you yeah, know like fucking it, badass it's a badass iconic poster but tells you nothing about the movie so that's why you know anytime one of the guys you're you know that had been affected like threw themselves outside and kurt russell's you know getting the flamethrower ready i'm like this is the moment i'm like okay we're gonna you know get blinded by the light you know no weekend, you know, just yeah. blinded by the light. But, uh, yeah, I was like, really? We don't get that? I mean, it is, it, that's a gripe I think people have had with the movie was, the poster tells you nothing. No, and I mean, even NECA, you know, with their toys, they came out with the thing toy where it's the, the light coming out of the, and I'm like, okay, so I'm like. That has you know, to be in the movie, right? That's so I'm like, I'm tying it all together. Okay, poster, the NECA toy, that's got to be it. And I'm like, no, it never happens. I wonder if that's why people didn't like the movie, was going into the movie, it tells you nothing. No. You have no idea. You don't really have any idea what the movie's about based on the poster. It looks interesting. And yeah. it's like, oh, it's going to be this cool sci-fi action film. And then it's, no, it's a very slow burn a paranoid thriller horror film. That's that's what it is at its heart. So, I can kind of see why it failed in that regard, but man, this movie is great. But, yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be like the, the deadlights in uh, It. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. thought, you know, is that going to be another one of... I mean, it's already bad enough that this alien can infect you and take over relatively fast. But I'm like, is it a thing where it, like, you know, shoots out light and, you know that could possibly infect you too, or that can kill you. I was like, okay, that's a cool little twist. And I'm like, no, it didn't happen. <laughs> Is that the thing you were most disappointed about was the poster didn't give you anything? I think so. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, uh, I, how about this? Because I can gush about the movie all day. Like, I can go into... You do. I do. Oh my God, again, it's one of my favorite films of all time. But what about the movie, I guess, to you, was a standout that you... The cinematography. Oh, it's beautiful, right? Yeah. The, was... the blue wash, the things that are lit in flare and flame. Yeah, I mean, you know, Halloween will remain my, you know, all-time favorite horror film, one of my all-time favorite movies. But the cinematography on this film is just so crisp and so clean 
that you feel like you're out there with them. And it's like, okay, yeah, like that, you know, kind of ups the, the fear factor a little bit because it's so realistic. You feel like I'm on the base with them. This thing, you know, could possibly infect me. And I, I will just, you know, kind of give that to Dean Cundy because that's just, you know, his talent where he makes you kind of feel immersed in his films. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way the movie shot and that, that blue wash, which I think is a holdover from Halloween, right? Because when they're yeah. at night, they have the blue light filter coming in mm -hmm. to say it's nighttime. But I think in this, it's supposed to be like emergency lights and yeah. whatnot. But how the colors look are so beautiful. I I recently bought a 4K Blu-ray player. That you've been wanting for a while now. Wanted it for a while. And I finally got a chance to watch the thing on it. And oh my god, this movie's so beautiful. It's so, so clean. And speaking of, of you know, Dean Cundy and the cinematography is the man can light a scene. Oh, yeah. Masterfully. And the, also the fact that John Carpenter was able to... John Carpenter is always able to use all the parts of his frame. And this is that big, beautiful Panasonic um, or Panavision film. And how some of the shots... I think it's right when Clark's about to like jump McCready and we have his hand in the foreground where it's the scalpel and mm -hmm. he's getting ready. And then you have McCready there and he has the gun pointed out and child's on the other end. He's being had the gun pointed at him. And I'm like, Oh, I can look at this frame forever. Cause everything's such a wonderful focus. And it's, it's a thing where, Oh yeah. John Carpenter drew the storyboard. Dean Cundy. He was able to make that shit come to life. Yeah. And speaking of how the movie makes you feel to how it looks, it feels cold. Yeah. Like you, We've been just getting out of a heat wave, and you watch oh. this movie, and it's like, ooh, it's a little chilly in here. Well, I mean, let alone yesterday was supposed to be, like, one of our, you know, starting to go back to normal temperatures. Like, okay, it's going to be, like, a crisp 84 day in California, which is, you know, we're all very grateful and anticipating. It jumped to 91 yesterday. So I was just like, bruh, even when they tell you it's going to be cool, it's not cool. But watching it, I felt like, wow, I'm really out in the Arctic. I'm stuck. It's beautiful, but I would not want to be here right now. And that's why I think I really love the cinematography for this movie because it transported me to where they were. And, you know, Halloween, I feel the same way, but at the same time, we don't live too far away from where the movie was shot. So we could actually physically walk up and down the streets and see the houses from the film. So it's like, we can live that. Yeah, and but... also uh, Halloween, it really wants to be... Um, Illinois, but it's really hard when there's palm trees in the background kind of thing. Yeah, but I'm, you know, just saying, you know, we can, you know, just drive and go experience that. And this movie, we can't because, fuck no, we're not going to the Arctic. Yeah. I but. Mean, crazy. Oh, sorry. Keep, keep going. No, but. Sorry I, to keep interrupting. No, 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 it's okay. But I was just saying, you know, that is his talent that he can transport you to the places in his films. Oh, Yeah. I mean, crazy thing about this is they didn't actually shoot on location in the mm -hmm. Arctic. They went up to, I think it was the north of Canada, like British Columbia or some such. Yeah. Um, and they shot on location there. So all the outdoor scenes are actually in sub-zero freezing temperature. That's why everybody's, you see all the, um, all like the steam coming out of their mouths mm -hmm. and all the breaths. And you see everyone feels cold. They're all bundled up. It doesn't feel like, oh, they're on a set. 
and they're, you know, playing it's cold. Like well, in the old Hollywood movies where it's raining asbestos and you have to act like it's freezing. Yeah, but uh, when they were shooting on sound stages, John Carpenter made sure that he dropped the, the temperature down to 40 degrees because mm-hmm. he wanted everyone to feel like you were there, you were freezing, you're trying to rationalize between I need to keep myself warm and I need to survive. Mm-hmm. And I guess when this was shot, it was shot during another heat wave. Oh, yeah. So it was 100, 100 plus outside and then working in 40 degrees is like shit like that. If we had that option right now, like sign me up. I'll work in a 40 degree studio right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing they did in um, The Exorcist where every like the whole house or whatever. It's like normal. But inside Regan's room for The Exorcist, it was a meat locker. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's one of those things where the movie's so smart and God damn, John Carpenter given the real money and being able to just display his talents. It really is his his most well-made film. Everyone's on, on the ball. The entire ensemble, I know you have issue because, you know, you don't feel like all of them have a well-developed character, their bodies for the most part, but I think they all give great performances in the ensemble. Yeah, it's not a you know an issue about performance. It's just I don't feel like I know these people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the only connection I have is... Kurt Russell and even Keith David because I've seen him in a lot of movies and Walter or Wilfred Brimley because diabetes yeah fun fact (laughs) this is like Keith David's first actual movie is it he had one um credit before this and it was an uncredited extra in Disco Godfather huh yeah this is like his first movie I think Wilfred Brimley he's like 40 something in this and he does Cocoon like two or three years later and that's like his big break. A lot of the the actors here are like really well well seasoned, well working mm-hmm. character actors for the most part. I mean, Keith David he goes on, he does some more Carpenter films. He, famously, he's in They Live. Yeah. Um, and he goes on and he does a lot of voice work now. Like yeah. he's a he's a pretty solid like acting career after this. Kurt Russell, need I say more? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wilford Brimley he has a good career after this. Everyone here kind of goes on and does a little bit more a little bit more after the thing comes out but at the time Carpenter was doing what he always does i want good workers yeah i want guys who can show up do the work do what i ask them i don't want prima donnas i want i want the work done and mm-hmm. that's Carpenter's motto you know i'm it's like i'm not here to make art i'm here to make movies i'm here to make pictures damn it we're gonna make movie pictures yeah but for me i felt like i needed more you know backstory yeah, I understand. I mean, you get that in the remake. I mean, not of these guys, but no, you know the Norwegians. Yeah, yeah. Have you you seen the remake? Yeah, I liked it. I you know I thought it was it wasn't actually as bad as everybody said it was, but I found out like why the movie why pretty much everyone who worked on the movie disowned it. Um, you know about like the CGI and the effects on it. Mm-hmm. Where they were doing it and they were going to make it a complete practical effects. They wanted it to... Because it's remaking the thing. Yeah. Which, you know, say what you will about the movie. The effects in the movie are are, excellent. And they did the whole thing practically. And then Universal got cold feet at the last minute. Because they didn't like the final alien. So they went in and tweaked everything with CGI. Mm -hmm. To the point until everything was CGI'd. So none of the practical effects ever showed up. They were just covered in computers, which really made the movie feel bad. But, I mean, movies at that moment, it was still pretty good for what it was. 
I just really wish we could see it where it was all the practicals instead of all the CG. But yeah, you no, know, I, I get that. What else did you want to talk about? The thing. Well, because this is the thing. Yes. Um, I guess. Well, let let's hit on to, I guess the the major scene of the film, and then we'll get into the ending and kind of what the movie's about. Okay. Because the major scene of this movie that I think everyone's everyone has an idea of mm-hmm. is the blood test scene. Yeah. Where it's McCready and he's got the the di- and he's got the dish of blood and he's testing it with the flames and then you have the big jump scare that happens and it's you know a really well done jump scare. There's tension. There's build up. Everyone's everyone's on edge. It's so quiet and then pop goes the weasel and everybody starts freaking out. It's a big action beat. But when people are stuck to the roof. Yeah, and people are getting flung around by their head because they're bloodied and everything. Um, but I love that scene because it's it's great tension. It's a perfect setup. It's a perfect payoff. There's there's a lot of character moments in here. The craft of it is so well done, and that really encapsulates the entire movie. Is that scene mm-hmm. where everyone is on edge. No one trusts anybody. There's no real way to tell if this test works, which us as the audience were of the opinion, how does McCready even know this is going to work? He's just guessing. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. In this situation, I got to take a guess. I got to see if this works. Well, yeah, it's trial and error. You don't know who it's in. So it's like you got to, you know, resort to anything at this point to figure out who's infected. Who's the thing. Or if they're all infected. And once he, he finally gets, you know, Pop Goes the Weasel, Oh shit, it works. It, it's real. And then we see what happens when the thing's found out, and it's a fucking killing machine. Yeah. And I I love that scene. I love that scene. And it's been parodied a bunch of times. It's been parodied in, like, um, South Park, I know, for, like, one of the Lice episodes. I know it's been um, stolen for, like, the X-Files. I know they did a, a thing homage in, like, the earlier seasons. Another one of your favorite things. I really like the X-Files. The first couple seasons are great. But I, I wanted to know, is uh, what's your favorite scene of the movie? My favorite scene? Um, probably when they're blowing stuff up at the end. Oh, the climax? Yeah. Why? It's just cool. They're just, you know, <laughs> throwing, you know, setting off uh, Molotov cocktails and, you know, setting up dynamite and just, you know... What do they crash through the roof or the wall with uh, the forklift? Yeah, they just run through with one of the tractors and they just crack it open to get all the kerosene out. Yeah, so it's just basically them destroying the base. I'm like, you know, that would probably be your idea of a good time. Just, you know. Let's smash some stuff up, boys. Yeah, smash it up. So, yeah, that was kind of cool to see them do that. And it's like, okay, is McCready going to be the last one standing? Because mm-hmm. it's like, he's with what? three other guys yeah he's with um Nulls and he's with gary uh and childs he he's disappears for like the the final act of the movie because yeah. um and they don't know where blair is mm-hmm. uh blair's wolver's brimley character he mm-hmm. got locked away when he started freaking out and trying to kill people uh so he's been locked in the shed the whole movie and then they find out he's been infected and he built a little spaceship mm-hmm. i wanted to see wilford brimley crawl into that fucking spaceship yeah, that was one of those scenes where I was like, what the fuck? I mean, we see the spaceship at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, and it and, crashes down, and it's like, oh, this is an alien movie. Yeah, so I'm like, all right, and then it's like, oh no, he was rebuilding it from the helicopter parts from earlier. I'm like, 
Huh. Okay, so, yeah. It, it, it's a thing, okay. It's a thing, in the yeah, thing. In the thing, yeah. But, yeah, I really like just them destroying shit. I mean, I like that scene, too. Especially when you get to the part where, you know, Blair's picking him off one by one. And then um, he kills Gary. And then Nulls just walks down the corridor and disappears. And McCready's mm-hmm. like, oh, nah. Please. Mm-hmm. Please tell me you just turn the corner and he's getting the stick of dynamite ready because he's about to blow the whole thing up. And then it turns into tremors. Yes, and I love that. Tremors start coming mm-hmm. out and then, you know, the thing pops out from under the under the floorboards and, you know, you get the money shot. Yeah. the, the Where Rob Bottin put all his fucking money into the money shot, the thing, the heads pop out, the dog thing comes mm-hmm. out. This thing is ginormous. It's covered in goo. And... What does Kurt Russell say? What does McCready say to this thing after it, you know, yells and screams? I think you gotta deliver it. Well, he says, well, fuck you too. And throws the dynamite and blows up everything. And it's like, we won! Yeah, McCready, victory! Oh, yeah! And then McCready's, you know, kind of collapses, you know, in the burned out shelter that's left of the the, uh, base. And then Child shows up. And then it's where were you, childs? Mm. I was chasing Blair and I got lost in the storm. Huh. And then that, the fucking tension. We get the relief of pressure and then boom, we're back into it. Yeah. Is childs a thing? Is McCready a thing? What? Who? Who is it? Because they sit there. They just look at each other. And they, you know, McCready makes the state, or childs makes the statement. That fire is going on. It's keeping the place warm. You're going to stay that way. Probably should find a way to to keep it going. And McCready's like, how about we just sit here and see what happens? Then, dun-dun. Dun-dun. The score kicks in. I'm getting literally getting fucking goosebumps. And it's the thing where it's such a bleak ending where, man, humanity, we won one. And then it's just totally underpinned with, no, you don't know if you won. Exactly. We don't know if we won, if one of them's infected, if they're both infected. If, yeah, if, if neither of them are infected, wash every, all of our heroes die. Mm-hmm. If one of them is infected, well, then it's over. Yeah. Like the thing won. The helicopter or the rescue team's going to come, pick him up, and it's over. Yeah. And it's, I love those, that Carpenter ending where it's, it's bleak, it's sad, like, the hero wins, but it's not even a victory, it's a break-even. Yeah. The best-case scenario is a break-even for humanity. God, the ending is, this movie is so good. What What did you think? Because I know you're a fan of endings that are a little bit more Yeah, I good, like, happy. I, well, I mean, not happy, it's just I like having closure. And yeah. this is not one where you get closure, because it's just, well, shit. They could both be infected. One, you know, might be. Okay, then they're going to get rescued, and then it's going to be, you know, unleashed on all humanity. Or, they're both good. Or they might freeze to death. So, did you like the ending? It's like- I, wa- I wasn't as mad as it as I would be. Really? Yeah. Now, why is that? Because it leaves the door open for a possible sequel... Oh, please. You never know. John Carpenter famously hates all sequels to his work. That doesn't mean studios, you know, listen to that. True, true. 
I mean, the studio did listen for this one because it bombed real bad. Yeah. Real bad. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it works in that factor of, you know, well, it leaves your imagination running, you know. Did they get the did they get the thing? Or did they not? And I love that. I love that ending. That open ending where you don't know and then you try and rewatch the movie to get a feel for it and Carpenter goes out of his way to make the ending as ambiguous as possible. Because there's a thing that's go that goes on throughout the movie. And this is him paired up with like Dean Cundy. Mm-hmm. Where Carpenter wanted a way for every character in certain scenes to be distinguishable. Yeah. As like, they're human or not. And how Dean Cundy did that was he had an eye light where it would shine in your eye. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you know, that twinkle in your eye, that's the human soul. Mm-hmm. And if you notice in the blood test scene... Everyone in it has it except Palmer. Palmer's eyes are like like darked out. They're like shadowed. No, I didn't notice that. It's a, something super fucking subtle. And I only know that because I watched the, the commentary. But he gets that little light going on for all the other scenes when they're human. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, oh, he does it half the time and then doesn't the other half of the time. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, oh, well, McCready, he has all the the um breath coming out obviously he's human and child's isn't but then you look and you're like no there's breath coming out of child's Mm -hmm. mouth he's human and then it's the thing well the booze right that because it's molotov yeah and then it's like well is it mccready probably still has a ball of booze and he was walking with that without the ragging and he was probably gonna get hammered because that's what we see mccready do the whole movie yeah and if it's not what if McCready just drank a little bit of that and he's the thing and then he just handed it to Childs and mm-hmm. that just infected him? Yeah. And it's it's so good. I love this ending because it's you can't you can't figure it. I it's know. it's wonderful. I love this ending. I love this movie. It <laughs> is so good. But I digress. Um and now what is the thing about? Because this is, you know, John Carpenter, full powers, giving the full auteur treatment. What did he make his movie about? Scary things. Scary things? Yeah. Mm, I see. I see. Scary things in the snow. <laughs> of course. Okay. Well, I'm talking like, what's the metaphor for the thing? What's the what's the, what's the the um, underlying thing of the thing? I don't know. I've never been good at this. Oh, where okay. You're the one that you can, you know pick these things apart and you could see the the metaphors and the symbolism and the depth of these films i can see the story in the cinema yes well okay this again movie comes out in 1982 this is i don't want to be offensive but i think it's a metaphor for like the aids crisis right Mm -hmm. you have these these guys and they're all men in a very enclosed intimate setting and then something infects one of them and it starts spreading and it starts knocking them off one by one and it's killing them kind of allegorical for what was going on in america at the time you know Mm -hmm. the the aids epidemic early on didn't really know how it spread it only spread in the in the gay community and it was called the gay plague and it was these guys who were in close-knit tight communities and it spread throughout them and you didn't know if you had it or not and you can carry it and give it away to other people and it was a death sentence i feel that's what the thing is a metaphor for the thing is a thing is a metaphor for and it also set off um paranoia because you know you couldn't see it you didn't know how it was contracted, and I think, you know, now, living in a, an age of COVID, we've experienced that where 
you know, people are still getting sick, people are asymptomatic, so you don't know if you're, you know, seeing somebody that has it and can pass it to you. You know, you don't know until it's too late. Are you a thing? Mm-hmm. Am, am I a thing that I just don't know it? And that was the beginning of the pandemic where we had no idea what this was. There was no cure. There was no vaccination. There was no guarantee if this was just a seasonal thing. And here we are almost three years later and we're still learning new things about it. And it's like, yeah, I could see parallels to illness and disease where it's just that mass fear and paranoia of, okay, if we don't know how to stop this, what can we do to prevent other people from getting whatever this is? And that's the thing about the thing. You know, the thing about the thing? Yes. Yeah, that thing. Is the movie is so smart. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of these movies that is kind of um, immortal. Mm-hmm. Because all the characters are reasonable. All the characters are smart. The metaphor and the messaging about it. I feel is still topical in one fashion or the other. I think people are still afraid of being passed on um, things, diseases, like even um, like even with alien, like this has been compared to alien a lot. Alien was an allegory for, for rape. And this is a allegory for like the AIDS epidemic. I think it is such a well-crafted film. I think it's a genius film. I think this is Carpenter's best film and no one showed up for it. And that crushes my soul. Nobody showed up for this movie. I mean, they showed up for my favorite John Carpenter film. The, it was the only movie they showed up for. It was the only movie they showed up for. Feels good, man. Feels good. Uh, all right. Well, we are we're at the about the hour mark here. So what are your thoughts on The Thing? Better than I expected or remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, killer poster. Great, great poster. Great poster. Uh, loved Kurt Russell's performance as Mac McCready. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. I mean, now that I, you know, I've seen it's not, you know, such a gore fest like I remember. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, I'd recommend it. I'll give it a shaky two thumbs up. A, a scared two thumbs up. Not scared, but just like, I'm still thinking about it, still processing it. <laughs> You're like, it's a good movie, you just don't know if you liked it? I liked it, but I don't know how much I liked it. I gotcha. I understand. And now Dean's gonna say why it's the perfect movie, and you know, I'm, I, he doesn't have enough thumbs to put up. I feel I spent an hour describing why it is the perfect film. All the characters are smart, all the cinematography is beautiful, the script is immaculate, the creature effects are bombastic... The ending is perfect. I feel there is not a loose thread or a loose idea in the film. It has an allegory that is both so topical and prominent of the 1980s and has carried on now to maintain its place as a masterpiece. This is John Carpenter's greatest film. It is one of the greatest horror films of all time. You should watch it, enjoy it, research it, love it. The Thing is perfect. I have said things are masterpieces on this show. I've said things are perfect before on this show. The Thing is actually a perfect film. Two strong, mighty thumbs up. This movie is great. All right. So what are we going to be watching next week? Well, next week, we're going to watch something completely different. Because famously, as we've discussed in this episode, 
the thing bombs like crazy. Yeah. So he goes on and John Carpenter's kind of disillusioned and he's just doing things for the money. So mm-hmm. he doesn't get completely ostracized from Hollywood. He does uh, Christine right after this. And after that, he does a studio Oscar bait sci-fi movie. He does the movie we're going to watch next week. Starman starring Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen. The only film in the Carpenter canon to have ever been nominated for an Oscar. Hmm. Okay. I've never seen this movie. This is one of the only Carpenter films I've never seen. Okay. So it's going to be a brand new movie for both of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. We release a new video every week. Sometimes we get really antsy and we release two every week. So come check it out, like, comment, and subscribe. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on uh, Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post daily stories, our adventures, trivia, upcoming episodes, and so much more. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.